Hello, and welcome to the Dark Markets Podcast with me, David Z. Morris. On this week's show, we have a roundtable, a venture capitalist, a payments expert, and a hard-nosed J. Jonah Jameson-style newsman. Wait, sorry, my mistake. I only have one guest, but he's all three of those things. That's right. This week, I'm talking to the one-man wrecking crew, Mike Dudas, Venmo and Google Wallet veteran, founder of crucial crypto news site The Block, and now partner at Sixth Man Ventures, a crypto-focused fund. Like me, Mike is an official crypto OG who began investing way back in 2013. Before pivoting fully into crypto, Dudas was part of a string of blue-chip tech and fintech projects, also at Disney, YouTube, and Braintree, where I was reminded during our conversation, Mike worked for Brian Johnson, now rather infamous for his life extension efforts. Mike and I first met in 2019 when he was launching something called The Block. That news outlet is now one of the most important in crypto, even after being caught in the fallout of the FTX collapse, which we discuss in this episode. Since stepping back from the block in 2021, Dudas has founded LinksDAO, a global golf club working towards a decentralized structure, and Sixth Man Ventures, a Web3 VC fund with a large focus on the Solana ecosystem. Mike and I talked about our shared journey as early crypto believers, his thoughts on the regulatory attacks on crypto, and the justified collapse of Bitcoin maximalism. He was remarkably open about how the team at the block weathered their brush with Sam Bankman-Fried, and why he doesn't think we know the full story of the FTX con. Finally, we got into where he's focused as an investor going into 2024. Hint, it rhymes with Moana. All music for Dark Markets is by Altus Nomina. Production and editing are, for now, by me, David Z. Morris. Now please welcome my guest, the one and only Mike Dudas. Um, I'll probably do some kind of weird cutting into this, but I'm here. I am here with Mike Dudas, a legendary, I think it's safe to say. We can pat each other on the back. Crypto figure, founder of The Block, and now at Six Man Ventures, and also LinksDAO, which I gather is still going ahead pretty strongly. So we're going to talk today about um, a lot of things, but I wanted to start off, Mike, first of all, welcome and thanks for thanks for being here. I really appreciate it, um, taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, David. Uh, it's always fun to chat. I know it's been a while for the two of us, and uh, obviously you're one of the folks I, I most respect uh, in the industry that I was spending you know, quite a bit of time in. Uh, from 2018 to 2021, which is you know journalism and research yeah, uh, in the crypto ecosystem. So it's really good to reconnect. Yeah, and I guess the, I wanted to kick off the conversation by asking a question about that, which is uh, like kind of in the big picture. You know, it's getting to the point to me where y- you you reflect about things um, and and certain things that are um, kind of hard to wrap your head around. And one of the big ones for me is like it is now getting to the point where it's crazy how right I was <laughs> back in 2013, thinking about this stuff for the first time. And you were also kind of class of 2013, starting to get into the crypto thing. And so I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you that specific question, right? Like, obviously you're in venture now and you've always been a startup guy. So it's kind of your job to be right 
um, long term. But I'm I'm just curious what it feels like having been, frankly, like so right about something so crazy and looking back on that and, and kind of where the conviction was at the time and, and how it has evolved. Yeah. So uh, I was fortunate and I think like a lot of uh, life is you know, getting lucky, but as the common saying is you're often uh, lucky because you've sort of put in the work or are in the right place at the right time um, from you know, the work that you've done before. So the work I had done for a number of years leading up uh, to learning about Bitcoin was working in you know, technology. So I spent the first mm-hmm. you know, media and technology, first decade of my career. Um, I started at Disney as they were transitioning into like an internet and tech company, and then uh, a startup, and then ended up at you know, YouTube and, uh, and quickly saw that I was more excited uh, by FinTech than ad tech. So I uh, moved from YouTube to Google Wallet in 2010. Uh, right. And it was Google Wallet, now is Google Pay. It's, it's humming and it's doing great, but it was way before its time, okay? And but what that early team did, it was a lot of folks with a lot of energy from traditional financial institutions, places like Visa, like Citibank, like Chase, who you know imagined a future world where it wasn't a nightmare to access you know your own money and to mm-hmm. use that money in you know financial transactions of all types, whether it's just paying people, borrowing lending, uh, you name it. And so, you know, the earliest iterations of this and what originally excited me was working on fintech, right? But, uh, and I was very optimistic in that 2010 era about the potential of fintech. Um, What I think has happened over the past decade and what I started to realize fairly early working at Braintree, working, you know, which is, you know, a competitor to Stripe many years ago and, you know, easier e-commerce payment processing, working at Venmo, which is easier peer-to-peer payments, uh, and then PayPal itself was that most of fintech, it's absolutely an advancement in you know our financial infrastructure, uh, but it's not a kind of leap, a complete leap forward, right? Mm-hmm. Like going from yeah. like analog to the internet was a complete leap forward. Most of fintech, frankly, to date, uh, has been putting you know nice user or business interfaces on top and maybe underlying communication um, interfaces on top of your legacy financial infrastructure that hasn't been improved in many, many decades. Yeah, I would say now that's starting to change in, in, a, in a number of different areas of traditional finance, but it's been slow and it'll take many, many more decades, for example, to move money from you know, Mike Dudas's account to you know, an account at a bank in Africa, okay? Right, you know, it's right. better than it was 10 years ago. It's not significantly better. What was exciting was you, you know, looking at Bitcoin at the time, and of course, Bitcoin hasn't released, uh, sorry, um, reached anything near its full potential at this point. But looking at Bitcoin at the time, you could basically imagine a future where something that was a network, you know, not controlled by a centralized entity, so an open global permissionless network uh, over which uh, value could move uh, and you know, basically could be created you know, using the proof of work method, uh, could be created you know, using energy effectively. Mm-hmm. And there are obviously other ways that you, know, you can reach consensus and, and validate transactions mm-hmm. and do things like that. But um, you know, Bitcoin was exciting because it was like put inputs in, you know, receive quote, you know, money out and then be able to use that money Mm-hmm. across this, again, open global permissionless network. Um, so 2013, when I discovered it, 
it was just wildly eye-opening, very different than traditional fintech. You know, I bought some uh, basically because I was meeting the Coinbase folks in the context of my work at Braintree. And so, you know, at the time I thought Bitcoin would be the payment network. And it turns mm-hmm. out stable coins, you know, are the current implementation of global open permissionless money movement. Most stable coins are, you know, U.S. dollar denominated, not Bitcoin, you know, you know they're not denominated, right. and, you know, floating currency. Or, the U.S. dollars. <laughs> Sorry, we won't go into that yet. Yeah, yeah. But, Immediately um, complex. But the overall point is uh, Bitcoin was just so dramatically different and still is than anything else, any other experiment uh, that was being approached and that's reached any measure of scale that it excited me dramatically. Um, yeah. So bought some at that point. Uh, it didn't, you know, and still hasn't sort of reached that original thesis that I was most excited about, which was the, because fees on Bitcoin are high, you know, the, the, the development, uh, it's, it's a relatively rigid you know, protocol and for a whole host of reasons, it makes sense. Um, but obviously that initial idea gave birth to Ethereum, gave birth to other uh, blockchains that I think, you know, have sort of optimized for different things and created, mm-hmm. you know, new design space. So it's been a really, really exciting and eye-opening thing. So to your original question, uh, you know, what does it feel like to be right? It's, it's, um, you know, it's still, I guess I was right about this is a really interesting experiment. And I think like because of that, a lot of people are going to be interested in working on it and pour resources into it. Um, you know, people even at the time in 2013 were calling it Chamath, you know, called it schmuck insurance, meaning you know, if the world goes to hell, this mm. has, you know, monetary properties of like limited supply uh, that are really attractive. Um, so that thesis has played out, even if the you know, payments right. one is still yet to be realized. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think both are important. I think in the long run, both will play out. And, you know, I feel very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time to hear and learn from people much, much smarter than me who've been looking at Bitcoin for you know two, three, four years longer. Mm-hmm understood it more deeply. And as proof that I didn't quite get it, I then went and started, you know, a web two company uh, and you love the people there. And it's a fun, fantastic company that's grown a lot, but I didn't get back into crypto Mm -hmm. and didn't pay much, much attention to Bitcoin uh, from sort of 2014 to 2017 when price started going up, uh, which uh, then got me to relook at it. Well, I mean, that was kind of both of us in a a way, although I was a couple years behind you because, um, you know, I was doing sort of other things. And then um, Breaker came along at about the same time that the block started. So that's where we we actually met. Um, So to sort of follow on to that, you know, obviously we have a lot of regulatory action right now. And around that is this kind of rhetoric People like Elizabeth Warren and maybe less less honest, I would say, um, representations of what this technology is about and what the industry is about. And I guess I'm curious for your take and maybe if you've had encounters with people who don't see the vision and more than that seem like hostile to the very idea on some fundamental level that I still struggle to wrap my head around. Um, and, and so I'm curious kind of what your take is on on uh, on that you know, the, the, the attacks on crypto, frankly, that have been going on for a couple of years now. Yeah. So I think it's completely unsurprising, uh, that the majority of people, uh, in the world, you know, don't understand, uh, crypto. They just haven't been exposed to it, learned about it. 
don't need it in their daily lives yet uh, because it's still not at like, you know, global mass adoption scale, like technologies such as, you know, your mobile device, right. That you frankly need uh, in your daily operations. So, you know, the majority of folks who I think snap default to disliking or not understanding crypto, I think it's fine. They're not, you know, poorly intentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that literally is 98% of people, let's say, right. Uh, and, I think the more troublesome portion of the audience is the folks with, you know, deeply vested interests, uh, you know, the Jamie Dimons of the world, right? The bankers, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, the, uh, you know, elected officials with an agenda and, you know, with lobbyists who help fund them with uh, the Gary Genslers of the world. So with regulators, uh, and in some cases who previously were very favorable to crypto and, you know, Gary Gensler specifically, uh, there's videos of him you know, supporting a token called Algorand in, I think, 2019, 2020, while he was a professor at Harvard and Which, he taught about crypto. What a choice. So it's fascinating. Um, so what, what there are, you know, those classes of people are folks with vested interests that they often, you know, don't reveal with candor. Uh, to the general public, who's not digging deep into this. And, you know, mm-hmm. the majority of the public, you and I have worked in media, kind of like takes what they read from authoritative sources or hear from authoritative sources as like, it's just information and it's gospel. It's only when you dig deeper and you know about the thing right. being covered and talked about that you get skeptical. So yeah. uh, I think that's changing, by the way. And that's a separate discussion as there's more kind of like citizen or, you know, niche, you know, focused experts in areas and people are becoming more skeptical of mainstream sources of information, whether that be political institutions, regulators, governments, uh, or, you know, mainstream news organizations. Mm-hmm. But uh, to, to answer your question directly, the challenge that, uh, you know, the crypto industry faces is that you have folks with uh, credentials that the average person recognizes mm-hmm. um, and has been taught, you know, through the traditional education system and throughout their lives to respect, believe, and trust in, uh, actually egregiously misrepresenting the way that, uh, you know, a variety of crypto products work, right? Um, and so, you know, the, and then basically latching on to the most extreme examples mm-hmm. and the most incendiary words to try to drive home, you know, agenda-based points that don't actually offer uh, any sort of nuance about the positive things that crypto can offer. So what I'll say is there's no question that crypto can be used for nefarious means. Of course, it is, you know, day in and day out. Uh, These are open, permissionless networks that anybody can access. Uh, Likewise, the traditional financial and um, you know, institutions and networks and industry are used day in and day out uh, at many orders of magnitude, larger volume for nefarious and illicit purposes. And there mm-hmm. are, now, by the way, this is not a justification of you know, that right. type of illicit activity. Um, we should be making our best efforts to snuff it out. Right. And there are many efforts to do that, you know, at centralized exchanges with, you know, KYC, know your customer, you know, with AML, anti-money laundering, and a number of other methods to sneak out, you know, freeze funds where possible, um, you know, when there are nefarious actors. Yeah. Um, And if you look as a percentage of the overall volume of activity, uh, illicit crypto activity 
you know, for really incendiary things like terrorism isn't particularly high. Chainalysis has mm-hmm. done considerable research into this. And it's just like you literally can't refute this objective data. Now, um, what happens is and what's frustrating, but it's not surprising is, you know, folks like Elizabeth Warren will, again, literally misdirect and speak complete untruths and then will latch on to things that are tangential to, you know, a pure decentralized open permissionless network to try to lump everything in crypto together. An example would be, you know, focusing on FTX as a failure of crypto. In reality, uh, well, certainly it was a failure of many people in crypto who had access to information about FTX, most likely, uh, or should have, and were unable to prevent it. But those folks do include, by the way, uh, regulators who welcomed SBF, you know, into their offices, uh, politicians who welcomed his money into their coffers. So, you know, and frankly, FTX was an unregulated exchange offshore. Uh, And so by trying to, you know, then use things like FTX, use things like, you know, terrorist financing to pass draconian laws that would actually not prevent either the next FTX or, you know, the next terrorist dollar, financing dollar going to somebody. Um, And, you know, basically being overbearing and overreaching, likely with incentives to help, you know, existing incumbents to continue their businesses. Yeah, that's certainly where I find it to be a problem. Now, I'm not going to persuade those people, those deeply powerful, deeply self-interested people with deep incentives that are uh, structured such that crypto is a really powerful and easy thing to attack because it's not yet well understood by the public. What I need to do is Mm -hmm. go speak and find, and we all need to do, people who care about crypto and realize the net positive benefit for society is go speak to uh, politicians with open ears, financial institutions that are are on the cutting edge. You know, hey, maybe, by the way, I mean, while JP Morgan Chase's CEO is crapping on the industry and Bitcoin, you know, they're also acting as an agent for, you know, Bitcoin ETF. So it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Um, But I think it's really finding those sympathetic ears and then showing the demonstrated use cases, things like remittances to specific countries that are lower cost by crypto than they are by traditional financial rails. And then getting those in front of politicians and then getting those stories in front of people and their constituents to show the good. So it's like, doesn't really make sense to attack the powerful people directly. Uh, I mean, certainly you can try, but the real way you're going to make a difference is by actually showing the beneficial things Mm -hmm. and teaching and educating more people. I I will say, I think that the, personally, I think that the attack sometimes is useful just for rallying people, but I totally get the positive messaging too. And I guess just a very quick aside, have you um, had a chance to look at Chris Dixon's new book yet? So I have not read it. I've obviously read his previous work, yeah. um, you know, essays on read, write, own, but I have not read the current uh, I mean, it's book. brand new. I had to sort of plow through it, but it, it does do, I think, a really, and it's arguments, it's it's nothing particularly novel. It's arguments that, you know, from Chris or other people who that we're already familiar with, but I think it's a good, you know, it's like a good vision that is actually notably not very Bitcoin centered. So um, yeah, I found it, you know, a good, just like thesis statement. Yeah. So my general belief is that I think that 
you know, Chris and A16Z Crypto and the companies that they invest in, uh, you know, they get a lot of heat from people like, you know, looking at, and I won't name any specific investments, but saying, you know, hey, I hear you guys talking about the benefits of uh, ownership, right? Like comprehensive network ownership and uh, decentralization and you know, no middlemen, but like, you know, when I look at the things that you've invested in, they're not there. And what I like about A16Z is that they are, uh, you know, basically they talk about progressive decentralization and that it takes time. Like mm-hmm. it literally takes time to build completely novel, new um, ways to you know, distribute value to accrue among all network participants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but why I really respect them is they take heat, but they deeply believe and what they're doing and not all of it's going to work, right? Not every investment they make will work and um, they're high profile. So they'll, you know, folks will look at the things that don't and point to those, but many of them will. And I think they are moving the world forward. And I have just a lot more respect for people who take risks with their reputations, with their capital and with their time mm-hmm. on being, you know, technology optimists and progressives versus, you know, folks who are sitting back, uh, you know, and, you know, prefer to sort of snark and attack, you know, every idea from default because it's not, you know, as its utopian stated vision is on day mm-hmm. one. And that's, by the way, just true of most of any early stage project that you would work on. It's just, you know, very few of them historically have been built so openly out in right. the public in the way that most crypto projects are. While also having, you know, constant, constant legal battles of a different sort than I think most startups deal with. Um, I, I want to continue forward and kind of get your take on on what this year might be like, but I wanted to ask you one backward looking, one last backward looking question first. Um, I, I I was just kind of looking back at some some old coverage, and I think that it was something I saw from you know a while ago now, 2018 or 2019. You were talking about um, Bitcoin maximalism as kind of a, a risk, I think, to Bitcoin. Um, and I'm wondering if that's still your perspective um, and and if you especially because I wanted to bring it up because this is something you said in, like I said, 2018 or 2019. And then I really think that like 2020, 2021, 2022 kind of proved that out because I think we saw a lot of Bitcoin maximalists kind of not doing us any favors. So I'm just curious where you are on that issue now and um, and um, not so much on the the maximalism itself, but on the on the audience for that set of ideas yeah so i think that no i i believe that the bitcoin maximalist uh like ethos has been uh completely discredited at this point right and i think you know i was among the folks who pushed back hardest in that 20 we'll call it 2019 era there mm-hmm. were certainly louder voices and more prominent ones right uh but it was really difficult to do that they um, the the classic Bitcoin laser eye maximalist and that tribe is extremely aggressive, extremely intimidating, uh, goes beyond, you know, is very cult like and goes intensely at very specific people and organizations and entities and tries to intimidate them with like, I mean, I would be, you know, my my communications would be spammed relentlessly. I mean, it was it was mm. pretty nasty. So um, I rejected that. Now, in 2018, let's just say, or 2019, I think that faction of the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem had much more power. And I think people, um, 
we're deferential to them or frankly we're more concerned about speaking out about that group mm -hmm. of people i don't want to name anybody specifically because they're yeah. bullies but uh what happened over time is that you know you could see the other quote-unquote experiments or the you know shit coin things or the bad negative awful things that were going to harm the world actually start to launch and be really successful and uh, create really interesting applications that people enjoyed and used and frankly used more than they were using their Bitcoin. Right. Uh, so examples of that would be, you know, Ethereum. Uh, I, I think I sympathized with the original, you know, Bitcoin maxi, hey, ICOs are scammy. Ethereum is dangerous. Like I was a little too easy to accept that. And frankly, many ICOs were, but out of that ICO era, an incredible number of interesting projects emerged, right? right? So, you know, things like Chainlink and, you know, things like Aave and Compound and DeFi in general. And, uh, and then, you know, gaming protocols, just a bunch of file coin storage protocols. So many interesting things started mm -hmm. to emerge that I certainly became open-minded uh, as did others. And then over the next few years, as Ethereum grew and some of these other, you know, L1s and application layer projects grew, it got, you know, NFTs were introduced and you started to see communities really enjoy their time together and this like ownership of an object that, you know, I could trade permissionlessly uh, with anyone, you know, anywhere in the world while I could also self-custody it. Uh, it was just very powerful. And so what happened over time is you could see a lot of folks who were previously Bitcoin maximalists, not the most like extreme hardcore ones, but like the the fringe ones, which I had been sort of like in the 2018 era, get really excited about other things that were happening and say, hey, I really enjoy this. Like Ethereum really is decentralized and not believing the FUD of the Bitcoin maxis. And I really am interested and enjoy some of the things that are being created and introduced. Um, and as more of those voices, I mean, Nick Carter is a very prominent one. Right. Who, I've you know, really been enjoying Nick over the last few years. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a, you know he's brilliant. He's a, a great person, strong of conviction, and willing to put his you know deep intellect and beliefs on the line. So great respect for him. And um, you know, Udi Wertheimer is, is another, and his um, you know, business partner Eric Wall. They've just been really, really like these are folks who. Even you know, all three of those people I just mentioned, far more than me, um, are deep, 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 passionate Bitcoin believers who've contributed to Bitcoin in so, so, so many ways. And to watch their journey, uh, again, after mine, mine wasn't super dramatic. It was just dramatically <laughs> personal for me. Yeah. Um, to watch theirs, which played out a little bit more publicly as they were, quote unquote, rejected. It's still happening with Udi and Eric with this, you know, Taproot Wizards, their NFT um, and it's it, well, so it's an NFT sort of project set of projects that's really a Trojan horse for yeah. changing you know how people think about Bitcoin at a fundamental level. Um, and so anyway, watching that and then watching them succeed, I think has persuaded many, many, many more people that Bitcoin maximalism is a dead ethos, and that mm -hmm. uh, or certainly maximalism in the sense that you know it the network should only be used for, you know, movements of money and storing, right. you know, digital dollars, uh, you know, with your, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it was this phrase that like, you know, in hidden places all over the world, it's like, interesting that it was this technical change is what like seems to have, I mean, obviously people were fighting the good fight before then, but now there's this technical change where the, 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 the underlying is completely different. And there's really like, 
almost no position left to stand on for like pure Bitcoin. Because I mean, that potential was always there in some degree. And so this like commitment to just you're going to be one thing forever, never even in on that level, aside from the like, does it make sense that we're going to be the world's currency? Even just the like Bitcoin is forever and immutable was was always a little bit of a weird set of ideas on its face. I do want to just rewind slightly before we move on, because you you brought up FTX. And I do think it's important for us to acknowledge that, um, you know, I think people will have different perspectives on this. But my take is that you were sort of a victim of FTX yourself um, in a in a, you know, quite um, nefarious way. Um, for people who aren't familiar, Sam Bankman-Fried sort of secretly loaned money to the block, the media website that you founded. Um, and that I think uh, I, I think it's already been turned around. And I think people kind of get a have a fuller understanding of, of that situation now. Um, but for a little while, certainly you and I certainly felt for like Larry and Frank having their reputation sullied by this thing that they had no involvement or awareness in. Um, and I, I was specifically interested, you know, I spent a lot of time still thinking about SBF. I, I was at the trial. Um, and I guess what I'm, you know, in your case, what happened was this secret loan that he, after the fact, framed as, um, you know, trying to support the ecosystem. And I guess maybe I'm just curious what your experience or or your take was in terms of seeing somebody with that mindset where like he didn't, maybe he didn't understand that what he was doing was corrupt or maybe he did and he just lied about it later. Um, so I, we don't have to dig into this too deep, but I'm just kind of curious what that experience was like for you having, you know, a, a really significant part of your life's work um, undermined by this guy who's clearly just a maniac. Yeah. So it was, uh, well, so one, it was shocking, right? So the, the, accurate set of facts is uh, that in 2021, after founding the block in 2018, I sold the company and I sold it to the employees. And you you can read like there were press releases and everybody Mm -hmm. talked about the time. Um, But the idea was deeply intended to be the opposite of what the later reality turned out to be. But it was to put this business that should be independent you know, crypto desperately and still desperately needs Tell an me about independent it. media uh, that is critically but fairly reporting, uh, you know, without any specter of financial, uh, you know, control of the journalism, uh, you know, basically needs that type of an outlet desperately. And so the spirit of me selling the block in 2021 was uh, to sell it to the employees. So the, the COO at the time, I'm sorry, the CEO at the time, I had stepped into the chairman role, was mm-hmm. a guy named Mike McCaffrey. Uh, and he had been our COO. And you know he was, to the eye, just a classically talented executive. And certainly in terms of operation of the block, mm-hmm. did a terrific job. Drove it to all-time highs in revenue. You know, Hired a really terrific team beyond the core team that I had recruited in, including him. Anyway, I thought I was selling in 2021 to the employees. What it turned out is that I sold it and uh, Mike, Mike's family, you know, they they have, uh, to my understanding, you know, they're, they're well off. And I was told 
uh, that basically the money was from his family. And you don't typically do source of funds. Um, the facts all checked out. We did mm-hmm. basic diligence. You know, is the family wealthy? And it all checked out. The lawyers looked into it. So the block was sold. Didn't think much of it. I was delighted. You know, hey, Larry, as you mentioned, Cermak, right. you know, head of research. You know, Frank at the time, you know, head of head of news. This is great for them. They're going to have more ownership in the block. And now it's controlled by the employees, including Mike as a CEO. Okay. Uh, you know, fast forward, it was probably 20, I want to say 20 months later, I get a call, you know, one hour before a news story breaks that, uh, hey, it turns out that Mike McCaffrey had actually borrowed I think $46 million over the course of a couple of years. I've forgotten that the number was that big. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think that was the number, but you know, let's just say it was a really significant amount of money from entities affiliated with SBF. Okay. Now you look, when Mike first took money from SBF um, or SBF affiliate entities at the time that I sold the block, even if I'd known, I don't know if it would have been like, it wasn't clear. He was a, yeah, I don't know that Mike. I mean, that's that almost time. the craziest part, right? Is that's that he could have just part. done it out in the open, probably. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, it's like I've thought a lot about that. And it's wild how these types of people tend to, uh, you know, kind of attract one another. The type of person who wouldn't tell you the source of funds is also the type of person who's going to maybe end up in a situation like that, right? And And the thing that he <laughs> said that SBF said that I'm I'm just working from memory here, but what I found so like, I don't know, there's something dark about it because what he said after this happened or this was revealed was that he wanted to keep the funds secret so that things would stay objective or like that so that it wouldn't have inf- And it's like he doesn't understand on some fundamental level, like how these things actually work in the real world. Yeah. Um, so Well, the way it works in the real world is like, if you want to keep things objective, Mike did do the right thing by not telling anyone. If you're going to take money from one of the wealthiest men in crypto, which SBF was already at that mm-hmm. time, who controls an exchange and a you know large trading shop, if you actually want your research and uh, news work to stay independent, you don't tell them, right? Mm. It's that's different than not telling me, the mm-hmm. person you know selling the majority stake, not telling the folks who had invested in the company, right? So. Um, that, by the way, this isn't to absolve it. I mean, I think you, yeah, you should yeah. do all of this out in the open and give folks the ability to make a decision. I, I don't know if I would have been comfortable with the structure of the sale if I'd known yeah. that was the source of yeah. funds, right? But it's hard to go back with what we know now. I mean, just yeah. what SBF did was so dramatic that this, the, the fact pattern is, is wild. And again, I'm certain that that wasn't Mike's intention at the time, okay? Yeah. That being said, uh, it's disappointing that more money was borrowed, you know, more folks were not keyed in. And I am confident beyond doubt that Larry and Frank and the journalism and research team were not aware of the source of mm-hmm. funds. They were as shocked as I was when it came out in December of 2022. And it's sad. And I feel sad for them. Um, yeah. But I but, think I think things have well, well, the vibe seems incredible? like things have turned around and people like these guys didn't jump ship. These are yeah. people of the absolute utmost integrity. It was a gnarly situation. I was out of the picture. I was devastated for Larry Frank, you know, Stephen, who was one of the earliest researchers, Tim Copeland, who's now editor in chief, you know, people of, again, the highest integrity who didn't know. 
and are dealing with this and getting so forget the pot shots at me right mm-hmm. like i'm a i'm a you know i made the decision actually to sell right those guys didn't make the decision yeah they are the ones of utmost integrity and guess what they stuck around like mike didn't leave after this was uh this was um revealed he yeah, was still i think the majority shareholder of the block and they kept working um, because they wanted to see an independent you know, journalistic and media entity. So the, the integrity of those guys and, and the you know, men and women at the block to continue to work on that and to work through the deepest parts of the bear and then come out on the other side where the asset was valuable enough to sell again and extricate them from that complex, you know, sort of FTX association and the loans and this and that. Yeah. I mean, huge kudos to them. And, and and just to be clear there, that's, you know, McCaffrey has been extricated. He's gone. That's That's been like months and months now, right? To the best of my knowledge. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, you're I, not directly involved. Yeah, I'm but. not directly involved. So I don't want to misspeak. But the, the way that I understand it is that that is the case. And uh, so... I'm delighted for, for those folks for seeing it through and, yeah. and getting the other side, um, continuing to put out great work. I mean, in a bear market, while being attacked and you know, with a lot of competition, they navigated yeah. through. Those are people of, I mean, like I recommend them to everybody nonstop yeah. uh, for anything they yeah. uh, would ever do. And, and I'm indebted to them. And, you know, you learn like those are the most trying times with any entrepreneurial endeavor. The folks who really stick with it and come out the other side um, are the ones that you always want to do yeah. work uh, with again. And so I want to take a step back from that. Obviously you were kind of directly impacted, but more generally I'm curious and then we'll, we'll move on. But like as an actual businessman, <laughs> as a person who actually like knows what they're doing, as far as I can tell, um, I'm just curious how um, sort of what you saw when you were l- unpacking all the stuff that that FTX and SBF, I don't know how closely you followed the trial, but it was just like one thing after another, just insane decisions, things that made no sense. Um, and, and so I'm just curious as a business person, like what what were you seeing when you were looking at those structures and like the Alameda FTX relationship and all of that stuff? Like what was your takeaway? Uh, completely and utterly stunned. So I was stunned on so many fronts. So the first being that FTX had gotten to an Alameda to the scale that they'd gotten to without there being any literally any formal uh governance it's just mm-hmm. it's just stunning i mean you had some of the best venture capital firms in the world uh by reputation and some of the best individual venture capitalists in the world yeah. by reputation uh and you know when i say by reputation but i also mean by you know results and and association and things that they've accomplished as well who were on you know, who, sorry, were, were significantly invested and involved in this entity and there was no board and there yeah. was clearly not oversight anywhere near the level necessary for a business of this scale. That being said, it's very difficult if you haven't. So if you've been too soft on governance to actually get, you know, information mm-hmm. rights and access, they very well may not have had it. So, you know, I've, 
I find certainly as businesses grow larger, information rights to be incredibly important. And, uh, you know, even in early stage deals, we request those as, you know, I'm a venture capitalist myself now, we request those um, in our documentation and we need to see the books. Um, And, you know, again, though, you know, I'm not a specialist in identifying fraud. So if you showed me a fraudulent set of books, uh, it may in a certain, in certain scenarios be difficult to ferret that out. Now, that being said, this was on such a grand scale mm-hmm. and that, you know, we certainly haven't. And I, I ass- I'm going to assume given the scope and scale of the fraud here, that it will continue to be investigated. Uh, you know, Hey, maybe the, maybe the government is done with it because they don't want uh, anybody looking into the political don- donations. Right. So, you know, threw that case out or chose not to pursue it, even though it is absolutely in the public interest. It's a goddamn shame. Yeah. But yeah, I'm certain you're going to have, depending on how the creditor situation resolves itself, people are getting paid out, even if they're paid out at 100%, they're getting paid out at 100% based on a value of bankruptcy at the bottom of the market. Bitcoin, $16,000. I mean, that is a, that the, you just made the, I, I talked over you, but you said it's caused by FTX and they're getting to pay out at that rate. It's crazy. And I feel so bad. I mean, I had a I had a guest on in the first episode of the podcast, Sunil Kaguri, who's part of the class action lawsuit. Um, and, you know, they were lobbying for that current par redemption. And I guess they just couldn't get it over the finish line. And I feel it's. Yeah. And I, I'm not a bankruptcy expert. And so, you know, there's pr- like at par today or whatever it is, like that'd be a difficult one. Like you have other stakeholders, yeah. right? Other creditors than just people, you know, who were customers of the platform. But certainly, you know, that day it's contentious. So my point in all of this is you're going to have additional lawsuits, more discovery. And at some point, like it still doesn't feel right. My, like it's, it's unquestionable that mm. more people had to have knowledge uh, again, I'm not speaking from any inside information. I was not yeah. an employee of FTX, not uh, you know an investor in FTX. I wasn't a customer of FTX. Yeah. Uh, they were actually a small LP in Six Man Ventures, um, but obviously because of the bankruptcy, you know they're not able to make <laughs> make their capital calls. So you just <laughs> move that stake to a different LP. Yeah. But um, the point of all this, and uh, you know, so I'm transparent about my interactions with them. And it's it's wild. I mean, so many, it touched so many people. Point yeah. being, at that scale, touching so many people, it's not satisfying to me, and I think to many, how this is being still portrayed. It's just there's just no way that I can imagine a world in which only four people or whatever or five people knew about the scope and four scale. or five people all in their twenties. Yeah, I mean, if you're programming, if you're you know basically creating you know some of the software. Uh, or you're, you're you're you hear you know people talking about you know systems like I, I don't want to sp- speak about specific things because again I'm not privy to it but mm-hmm. whether it's like you know cross margining or how their you know risk engines work and you're like I actually didn't build that what's what's what are they talking about like people had to know something was up so yeah I think that's where you basically say you know this story is yet to be fully told and it's unsatisfying. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think it speaks to why I'm certainly somebody who is pro regulation, pro auditing for entities that require trust 
in the crypto space. Uh, yeah. So, you know, exchanges, you know, money transmitters, you know, stablecoin issuers, things of that nature. Yeah. And I'll just say one last thing on this, which is per the like redemption for the bankruptcy thing. You know, I was seeing headlines to the effect that like all all creditors will or all depositors will be made whole now. And technically, that's true because you're they're redeeming at sixteen thousand dollar Bitcoin. I'm infuriated by that because they're going to get to have these headlines that like all of the all of the FTX depositors got their money back. Well, not really, for one thing. Um, and and B, there's all there's still these like ongoing efforts. Again, speaking to the fact of like it doesn't quite feel right. There's a few too many people still trying to say that there was no crime committed, um, which to me is extremely suspicious. It's incredibly, incredibly you know, puzzling. The folks who, you know, sort of stand or defend, you know, SBF and say, hey, you know, it would have been OK. Maybe he would have gotten through it if yeah. uh, if they, you know, CZ hadn't said X, Y, Z on this day, you know, he would have gotten through it. Yeah, no, that's not OK. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw, but there was actually a, a new one of those published like last Friday. Um, just, well, so that one was published, right? Wasn't it actual, like, fam, like literal family friends? Of exactly. SPF? And they acknowledged that, but it's still like, what do you, like, why would you publish well, how, that? How, like, I don't want to get myself in, like, trouble by calling, like, but how delusional do you have to be to basically make that disclosure and then stake your professional reputation on the argument that was made in that piece? It's yeah. absolutely stunning. Um, I mean, gross. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like my super cynical take is that they know that they're not going to face any consequences and they're rubbing it in our faces and, and they're just going to keep yeah. doing it. Um, but and on the other hand, well, people lose face in these institutions, you know, yeah. like even me as a Stanford grad, it's disgusts me that, you know, Stanford professors, you know, are involved in this. And then this was written by some Harvard professors and right. it definitely plays into these like conspiracy theories that it's all these folks, you know, who just think they're genuinely and deeply above any repercussions for amoral yeah. behavior. Well, let's move on to something more positive. How about that? Um, let's do it. Which is, so, you know, you're in venture, you're about what's happening next. So what do you see, let's just say for the next year, like what do you see as conditions for the industry, the market, things like that? And so, maybe you can talk about some stuff that you're invested in. Yeah, so it's an exciting time. And I think the uh, market like prices are reflecting that, right? Bitcoin had a great year yep. in 2023. Uh, you had the ETF uh, you know, approvals in early 2024, a little bit of a pullback on that so far, but yep. you know, generally bullish sentiment on Bitcoin. Uh, and Bitcoin is the big dog, right? It's the leader. It's, it's by you know, market cap. It's the most well-known. It's the oldest. It's the you know, most resilient, most decentralized network in crypto. And uh, you're finally seeing more like more significant experimentation in Bitcoin with like really, really high caliber developers. So folks who are taking new approaches to like layer twos with mm -hmm. ZK technology um, on top of Bitcoin, you're seeing uh, ordinals, you know, so at the actual protocol level innovation and how block space is used. And so just multiple uh, ways that folks are experimenting to build new applications uh, on Bitcoin. 
that is so incredibly bullish. It's it's wild that like after, you know, I think a lot of people last year and the year before were like, well, this is all very exciting, but like Bitcoin is doing kind of nothing. And then suddenly just like, bam, there's this technological gate opens and there's this incredible new amount of stuff going on. Wild. You, you never know what's next. It's, so it's this really is the crazy. beauty of crypto is that it almost always surprises you uh, in the on a on a long enough time horizon and in the aggregate in a positive way. Like nobody yeah. saw that ordinals would be the vector by which you'd see this sort of like Cambrian explosion of developer interest and excitement in Bitcoin. But thank God it happened, right? And the OGs and the people who have been in the space, many of them, the maxis, as we were calling them, so a segment of mm. the OGs viewed it as spam and viewed it as crazy, an attack but... on the network. And, you know, the beautiful thing with permissionless networks is that- you There's no such choose. thing. Yeah. <laughs> or, hey, you know, you could try and fork it, but let's, you know, let's see how that goes. So, um, so that's bullish. So that's, you know, point one. Point two is uh, the Ethereum ecosystem continues to- uh, continues to, despite the price of ETH not increasing, you know, in 2023 mm. as much as other, uh, you know, large cap tokens, the aggregate value, you know, when you include uh, L2s has, you know, basically brought a significant amount of you know, new value and new developer activity and novel approaches to Ethereum. Uh, so that's been exciting. The, you know, meaning, you know, Ethereum is actually starting to scale, you know, we had mm-hmm. so much trouble in that 2019 to 2022 era uh, in terms of, you know, fees just skyrocketing anytime yeah. anything was happening in one section of the, um, you know, network because, you know, there's not parallelization and it was all basically, you know, shared state and block space. So it led to really challenging right. times of congestion and price spike uh, that is being changed uh, in a number of different approaches to scaling. And again, this is the beauty of permissionless networks is you have all types of approaches, you know, optimistic, validium, ZK, uh, and more. And then you're also seeing alternative uh, DA layers, you know, things like Celestia come out. So developers have a really good palette to build uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem on the Ethereum virtual machine. And I think that's positive. Yeah, Uh, I uh, experienced that myself in a really nice way, which was, you know, I minted some NFTs that are going to help fund the book on SBF that I'm working on. And, you know, I was a little bit anxious because I I don't, I didn't want to do a layer two. I wanted them to be there. And, you know, I was able to mint to mainnet for a very reasonable amount of money relative to what I think it would have been a couple of years ago. So I, you know, I was very pleasantly surprised by that. And I think people are finding that I've been surprised. I use Ethereum less than I used to um, just because of my personal focus areas that we'll get to, but um, absolutely had the same experience. Just transactions that I remember yeah. last you know year ago being, it felt like four or five times higher yeah. uh, than they are now. Uh, I didn't even have to time the fee market. It was great. I wasn't like up at oh, midnight yeah, exactly. trying to save 10 bucks. Exactly. So that situation's improving. You know, there's definitely challenges. Um, you know, fragmentation of attention, liquidity. Your developers, while they have a lot of choices, and that's a good thing, they have a lot of choices, and that's a bad thing. It's mm-hmm. yeah. really difficult, I think, for folks to know exactly where they should build the thing that they're building. Yeah. Um, but you know, net net, uh, I'm you know generally positive on the direction that Ethereum is heading, and it has so so much capital behind it you know the the big mega crypto funds yeah uh 
uh, Coinbase, you know, particularly with, you know, their implementation on, you know, on top of optimism with, with base, uh, which is, is turning out way cooler than I expected to, by the way. Yeah. I'm impressed. It's, it, it is impressive. Um, okay. X, you know, has their own layer too. There's, uh, you know, those things help. It's, it's, it's nice to see, um, it's nice to see exchanges really starting to encourage their users and their customers to do things on chain versus just, you know, trade tokens. Uh, look, totally. the risks and the reality, but again, we talked earlier about this notion of like progressive decentralization, Vitalik's written a lot about it. You know, most of these L2s are not, uh, you know, they don't fully share Ethereum security and mm. or, you know, they don't have fraud proof. So there's still some risk and some centralization significantly with them. But again, for the usage and the dollar value that a lot of folks are using them for and the types of applications, it's okay. And then yeah. you always have Ethereum L1 if you need. Which that was to, always the thesis, right? Like yeah. lower security for other things, basically. Yep. And then the hope is that you'll still get you know, more and more security. And and again, you know, decentralization. So when I say that, I should say censorship resistance right. uh, in the future. So, you know... It's not Ethereum is so broad and it's still like there's so much money and developer resourcing. And um, so w the one frustration I've had is just I'm still not seeing quite as much at the application layer, which is where my firm Six Man Ventures tends to invest in mm -hmm. Ethereum, as I'd hoped. We're still hmm. at that infrastructure phase where it's like, hey, there's you know, four different major approaches, uh, four or five to you know, scaling Ethereum and Hey, we're focused on now things like financialization. So obviously liquid staking and then restaking and liquid mm -hmm. restaking. So, right. You know, that's another, that's a big one. I think that's going to be a big one this year for discussing, especially it since clearly it comes is. with its own risks. Yeah. And we, you know, we get pitched all the time and, and candidly, it's not an area that I'm so deeply focused enough to be an expert. And so other folks are. Um, but also, and I think just, if you're not an expert on that, it's high risk enough that it's a thing it's, to worry about, frankly. It is. It is. Some of these uh, are going to blow up, right? Like there's just going to be yeah. you know, bugs in the code or literally the economic uh, right. model just doesn't work out the That's way what you I'm did. Or sure there's not that. sufficient collateral. And some of these you know, people are going to lose money by taking, you know, one ETH and then staking it liquid and then you know, restaking it. And there's going to be problems. Yeah. But I don't know where those are. I'm not. Uh, deep enough in that ecosystem uh, to understand yeah, what yeah. I'm looking for and what I'm actually pretty excited about in Ethereum from the application perspective is there's some really interesting stuff happening in the gaming space. You know, you've got, um, you know, IMX, Immutable, you know, with their Polygon partnership, ZK EVM. There's some really interesting games being built there that I think uh, we're invested in, you know, at least one. And, you know, we'll see some exciting stuff come out this year. And then, you know, Arbitrum, I think that one is really uh, separate from, call it the, the big, big, big money. It's, mm. it's a, you know, their approach and their censorship resistance and they have fraud proofs. Like it's, it's a little more exciting to me. And so we've seen some really good builders there and we've backed a few. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, what, like, so I think the Ethereum ecosystem overall and, and the Ethereum virtual machine are an exciting place and you're going to see a lot of development. But it sounds to me like what you really want to talk about is Solana. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just, you know, I feel very fortunate that um, in 2021, when we first started Six Man Ventures, our first fund was uh, you know, much smaller than our current one. 
uh, you know, we're an REA now, so you know it's obvious that we have more mm-hmm. than 150 million in assets under management. But our first fund was you know, only 7.3 million, and we put a lot of that fund into Solana applications. So nice. you know things like Orca, which is you know decentralized exchange, uh, things like uh, Steppen, uh, Magic Eden. Uh, Photo Finish, which is a horse racing game, Aurori, which is another game, and just a bunch of different things. Metaplex, an NFT standard uh, that is very, very popular. So we, by doing so, of squads, which is you know basically the leading multi-sig and treasury product in Solana. So those are all applications, right? Some financial, some gaming, uh, but it was really exciting. And it gave us exposure to the ecosystem. So we learned because we were not early Solana investors. Mm-hmm. We weren't even a firm when the actual sole, you know, Solana sales happened. Um, so you know, we saw the best in it. We saw Solana when it was really, really working well pre, you know, 2022's kind of second half of 2022's collapse. So we were there at the end of 2022 uh, at the very bottom. And again, this lines up with what you were asking me earlier. I mean, this is the same month. So late November into early December when I'm finding out, you know, the the uh, unknown connection between SBF and the block. And, you know, we have a ton of investments from our first fund in the Solana ecosystem. Uh, you know, and the price of Solana basically bottoms at eight. And I was fortunate enough. So the way that a lot of things happened. So one, I'd seen the good of Solana and I knew Mm. a lot of folks there and I'd actually recommended a few of my friends join Solana uh, labs and and now they're at foundation. So my best friends uh, on earth. So I kind of had a front row seat to understanding that, look, there's, there's real substance here and we're we're building really good things. And I'd been working on it through our founders, through the folks that, you know, I knew at Solana labs and foundation and through the entrepreneurs that we weren't invested in. So where a lot of things happen in crypto, by the way, like socially is on Telegram. And Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to be a part of um, this Telegram chat. It's, I would call it the most elite, you know, Telegram chat uh, (laughs) in, it might be the single most elite. uh, And I don't mean elite in the terms of like, it's just the best mix of builders, uh, investors, users like power users and um people who are entrepreneurs and, and and also people who work at protocols and then core engineers uh in in any crypto ecosystem it's actually called shoe shoe on head um and it's uh it's a really really powerful group that rallied together um again with all of these different stakeholders from the ecosystem at the bottom of the bear and said hey like there's too many special right. things. And by the way, this wasn't the only group that was rallying, but what was cool is there was a Venn diagram that like any, almost anything in Solana would include some of the people in that group. And there were so many efforts to say, you know, when the FUD was coming out that there were 75 developers on Solana or, you know, the chain is just going to go down forever in perpetuity. It's unstable. And there were some evidence that like it had gone down, but there was also yeah. reasons why it was being improved. This group was really, really good at communicating what would like what was changing what was improving why there was substance and why the price wasn't reflective of it so you know it gave me great confidence to see these folks some folks did you know leave solana right there was a the most prominent nft project day gods right they went to ethereum and polygon uh there were many other builders who which i think they came to regret fairly quickly 
if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I imagine the floor price dropped dramatically and, you know, they haven't found their footing since. I don't think they're bad people by any means. Right. And I but. think they were doing what they believed was the best thing for the survival of their business, um, but it wasn't the right choice, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, what was exciting was to see the folks who doubled down. And uh, it was non-obvious and non-consensus. So we did as a firm, you know, we were in our second fund at this point. And uh, candidly, we didn't do a ton of investments in Solana, you know, as a fund in that kind of like end of 2022 into early 2023. We did a few smaller ones, but mm-hmm. um, but we got to know folks and we were very I mean, that'll close. really test your conviction. I, I, I can't blame yeah. you for not... <laughs> Well, there was just the investment pace around the entire ecosystem. Oh, sorry. All of crypto was down. Right. Right. And you can see it, you know, in in the trailing statistics, but you had to have a sense that we were deep in a bear and there wasn't deep clarity on when the bull would resume. What you can see now in hindsight is that a, that was the bottom and a bullish market was starting to resume. Right. I mean, Solana bottomed at eight and, you know, when we're talking today, it's somewhere around a hundred or above. Uh, and so, wow. you know, it's been exciting. So basically the technology is really, really good. So uh, Solana is, I believe, you know, sufficiently decentralized and censorship resistant. Uh, it is a faster network in terms of, um, you know, transaction time, you know, faster blocks. It is far lower fee than, you know, other, most other L1s. There's a new breed of L1s that, you know, I think from a, uh, there are others, you know, the move, the move networks that have uh, low fees as well. But Solana has like basically all of these things, plus a really active developer network, improving tooling and a growing user base and folks Mm -hmm. who have like made money in the ecosystem, just like Bitcoin, Ethereum. And you need people to have made money in your ecosystem for it to basically be sustainable. And so until you've reached that escape velocity, uh, you're at deep risk. I think Solana has reached that escape velocity and we invested like that over the past six months. And now we're heavily invested in the ecosystem at what I view as a growth part in, uh, you know, a growth part of the cycle. Awesome. So, so for 2024, what I think that means is, you know, the things that salon entrepreneurs focus on are definitely more application focused than, you know, pure infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so we're really excited to see those applications, many of which, by the way, we invested in in 2021, you know, really scale this year. Uh, And we see many, many more interesting ones. One interesting one is Drip, drip drip.haus that we invested in, which is a new distribution method for creators to um, send Hmm. NFTs to people who opt in to receive them. It's sort of only possible on Solana because the cost of sending the NFT is so low. They're compressed NFTs, which is unique to Solana versus some other chains. And um, yeah, so just different interaction methods with collectors and artists than you can actually do on like L1 Ethereum. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, you definitely should. And it's, it's been fun. It, um, Brian Johnson, the guy who's like the life extender person who okay. I worked for at Braintree uh, recently this week actually used uh, drip for a promotion of uh, s- sending out some NFTs for promotion of his zero project. So, you know, it, it's both organic stuff and uh, paid stuff and it's a really neat new model. But anyway, bottom line is, um, I think, you know, I'm not a price guy. Like I'm not, uh, there are some great folks, there are some folks who are great at 
calling Price, who are former traders, guys like right. Chris Berniski, a placeholder. And, you know, I'm not one of those people who makes, you know, public price uh, pronouncements. But, you know, generally, so like, I don't know if we'll experience a price pullback on Bitcoin, Ethereum or Solana and, you know, all the other coins uh, over the next, you know, you and I are talking here, uh, you know, at the beginning of February mm-hmm. over the next, you know, three, six months. But I think it's pretty clear now that there's clear line of sight that, you know, at some point in 2024, 2025, we're going to see uh, a pretty significant expansion of the mm-hmm. number of folks interacting with crypto applications. Yeah. The big caveat to that is we're actually not seeing it yet. So all the activity we just talked about and the recovery, candidly, almost the entirety of that um, from, from the data that I've seen is coming from people who were already crypto native. Right. Um, and so, you know, there've been some inflows, but not massive ones. And I think that, you know, when you start to see Coinbase, you know, go up the app store rankings, which hasn't quite happened yet. You know, when you start to have your, uh, you know, your Uber driver ask you about, you know, the crypto that you're buying, which hasn't happened yet. That's when, you know, you know, we're, we're back at mainstream adoption. We're not going to get there. Uh, I think the most challenging thing is until we get more drip like applications right. on chain. Uh, and there are some other fun ones that are happening. You've seen a lot of buzz about Farcaster and their Which, yeah, I'm actually like, that's one of my tasks for today is to sign up for that. Yeah. So what's exciting is more people are doing that. And those are the types of interaction methods that quote unquote normies, but like our friends and our friends who don't spend every minute on crypto understand. And I think we're pretty, pretty close to the right applications being out there. A lot of gaming, a lot of social stuff, some new NFT interaction methods. I've seen a few on-chain games launched just in the past week that look really interesting that will start to capture the public's attention. And we've seen how fast these things move in previous cycles. It just becomes a real big flywheel. Uh, we have the infrastructure in, st- in place for more stability this cycle, I believe, to make it sustainable so that we don't have another 18-month bull market you know, mm-hmm. followed by a massive yeah. crash. I think if we keep having cycles like that, it's extremely risky for mainstream adoption of crypto ever happening. Yeah. Well, that's at least like, you know, that's, that's really optimistic, which is great. And, and I think that, uh, yeah, I agree. It's actually a good reminder that we're not quite there yet because I think the news over the last six months has been so good that it kind of feels like we're off to the races, but there's still room to run, which is great. Um, I think we're running up against your time. I just wanted to do a little bit of wrap up here first, just on a personal level. I just wanted, I still owe you a very expensive steak dinner because you gave me what has turned out to be one of the most consistent pieces of advice I get from everybody, which is we talked when Coindesk was recruiting me and your advice was ask for more money. Um, And I did, and it worked out great. And frankly, I'm in good shape right now because I did. So I really owe you um, on on several levels on that. You'll never get what you don't ask for. And so people are too shy and too uh, averse to negotiation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, yeah, my advice to everybody is basically ask for what you believe you're worth and, and believe in yourself. And the last thing I wanted to just see if you had any updates on, which is, like I said, it seems like it's still going well, but how is LinksDAO? Absolutely. So what's been exciting about LinksDAO is that we have crossed the chasm from being a purely quote unquote Web3 project to being a project that is understood 
noticed and embraced by a traditional industry, in this case, mm. the golf industry. And it's mm-hmm. a heroic you know, feat by the core team, but also the community and how they represented and sort of upheld the standards of excellence of Linksdow. Um, so the CEO and, and my co-founder, Jim Daly, uh, comes from, you know, he's, he's, he's a sort of a crypto native and that he uses tons of crypto products, but uh, he's more of a you know, tech industry native. Mm-hmm. And so he did an incredible job of bridging and making relationships with all of the big names in golf, which was essential to give the project long-term legitimacy. So folks like Callaway, uh, Top Golf, Bridgestone, and so what's happened by virtue of that is that you know we've actually been able to do the thing that we promised we would do when we started the project, which was we bought one golf course uh, and we have a plan to do that again. We have a plan to buy more than one golf course. Uh, so the first golf course is a Scottish Lynx course. You know, there's fewer than 200 of those, I believe, in the world, or around 200 of those in the world. And uh, we're renovating it this winter, and it looks nice. gorgeous, and I'm excited to get out there. Um, this Literally year. in Scotland? Yeah, so northern Scotland. Uh, and so, yeah, look, it was fun. What was challenging, and so it's been challenging as well. So a couple mm-hmm. things. One is, you know, basically we started the project at the peak of, you know, kind of Web3 NFT hype. And, you know, from that peak to the bottom, I think volumes dropped 98%. Uh, in in, uh, NFTs and not only that but royalties largely went away right so part of the original thinking was that you'd have this royalty stream that could continue to fund the project Um, when that went away what happened is you know we had to make do with the uh, funding that we'd raised right so Mm -hmm. we raised some venture capital funding and uh, the team's done a really good job of that so ultimately We've always said, it, unlike you know most of the NFT market, LinkStow, the NFT is not a speculative one. It's like mm-hmm. something that is meant to be it's a membership. You know, an into membership. Yeah. So we've given, we believe, great benefits. So the vast majority, you're never going to please you know every single customer, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of folks uh, are happy. We've had, we see them at events. So it's it's really cool. It's it's a real world community. Um, the things that have been the biggest challenge has been, you know, it's called Links DAO, and while we've had, you know, governance votes, and while we've done things very publicly with the community's approval of major decisions, um, we were never able to form a truly decentralized autonomous organization. Mm-hmm. And you know, we made clear in sort of the terms of sale when we sold the NFTs originally that there was a corporate structure and all of those things. Um, and so I think like many projects, and you'll hear this across the board, uh, the, and this is, I was actually going to make this point when I, when you were saying, Hey, you're so optimistic about 2024, <laughs> 2025, look, the biggest challenge I believe is still you know, regulatory. So yeah. there's not regulatory clarity on how to create, for example, a decentralized autonomous organization. There's not clarity on, you know, custody rules, uh, and self-custody rules, you know, custody rules for funds. Um, you know, non-custodial wallets, you know, decentralized protocols and their interfaces. There's just so many uh, stable coins. There's such a lack of clarity from a regulatory perspective that yeah. it does actually create, you know, business risk. So um, to get back to Lynx, you know, we basically changed the headline name of it to Lynx Golf Club. And oh. we're now able to uh, sell 
memberships to folks without them buying an NFT. So we'll sell a package. It's different. The NFT holders have unique rights. They don't have to pay an annual fee, like referring recurring fee. They don't have to, uh, they have voting rights on governance mm-hmm. proposals. So they have unique rights. And I believe it's the highest form of membership. But at the same time, you know, folks can buy with Fiat and become a member of Link's Golf Club. Yeah. So, you know, this is the, this was always the idea that you could transition to yeah. the mainstream. Um, I think the, the long-term hope over the next few years is that we can continue to do both and that we can grow the kind of Web3 and you know, NFT yeah. ecosystem presence and the golf presence and introduce both to one another, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we've, I've invested in some other projects that are like Web2 projects that you know, tried to add NFTs or Web3 elements to their projects. It was a challenge because of the bear market, I think, is people become more open-minded. And again, and we get into the next cycle, we'll start to see those types of kind of like hybrid projects be more successful, yeah. but it's still challenging. It's a process. It's a, it's a yeah. discovery process. You're figuring things out. Nobody has done this before. So, I mean, I think exactly. that's just out of the way. And so goes. most people are supportive. That's what you'll find. So with LinksDAO, it was a novel idea, a crazy idea, a global golf community. And so we feel very fortunate that the community and the people who originally believed in us, you know, the vast majority continue to, that we've been able to buy a course, like we said, and we want to go bigger than that. So we're working on it. But, nice. you know, it's a, it's a startup project. Well, it looks like we're up against your time. Is there anything... In the, at the at the end here that you want to shout out or invite people to look at or yeah I mean so look I I want them to look at what you're doing for starters so certainly to, to read everything that David puts out you know when, when this interview runs I'll, I'll share it because you know awesome. I think you're Thank one you. of the you know, highest integrity you know, journalists and and folks in the space um, but also one of the smartest and those two things are really important. Um, so I appreciate you giving the time to talk to you. Oh, of course. And then, you know, folks ever want to reach me, I'm just on Twitter at, at M-D-U-D-A-S. And uh, you know, Six Man Dot Ventures is our venture capital firm's website. And we, you know, invest in early stage uh, companies. We like to co-lead and lead rounds. And so, um, you know, my my inbox, my DM inbox is always open. For nice. Great ideas. Well, there you have it. Mike Dudas with a, um, a bright and shiny vision of the future. Thanks, <laughs> so, David. Thanks, Mike, for coming on and uh, coming on Dark Markets, which is what we're now calling this thing. So, Ooh, like um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Mike. And uh, we will continue fighting the good fight. Cheers.